Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh History and Games Lab podcast. In this series of episodes, we'll be talking to historians, game creators, heritage professionals, and others about history, games, and the places where they meet. Today's episode was originally meant to be a discussion of the Compulsion Games Convention in Edinburgh in April, but the COVID-19 pandemic caused that to be called off. So we recreated and expanded the conversation online. Because this is a pilot episode, you'll find some points in this episode where the audio quality could be improved, but we hope you'll find the discussion interesting nonetheless. Our guests in this episode are John Hodgson of Handiwork Games and Davide Mana of Acheron Book. John is working on Beowulf, Age of Heroes, a role-playing game based on the Old English poem, while Acheron is currently kickstarting Brancolonia, a role-playing game based on, among other influences, the Brancoleone films. It's part of a growing trend called Spaghetti Fantasy. Um, I asked co-host Gianluca Racagni to give us a quick summary of spaghetti fantasy, and he said, This is a largely overlooked genre that is inspired by Italian and Mediterranean history and folklore, as well as literary and cinematic representations of that, including works by people like Italo Calvino, uh, Umberto Eco, and Mario Monticelli, and to some extent by spaghetti western as well. The name of the setting is inspired by uh, two movies from 1966 and 1970, which involved the most famous Italian actors of the time and achieved extraordinary popularity in Italy. is a Don Quixote-like poor knight who believes himself to be the epitome of chivalry while leading a roguish but likable bunch of followers. The term Brancoleone army is commonly used in Italy to signify a ragtag group of underdogs, and that's the philosophy of Brancolonia itself, in which players take the role of a band of knaves in search of fortune in a weird version of medieval Italy. So with that introduction out of the way, let's get started on our conversation with John Hodgson and Davide Mana about history and role-playing games. Our topic for today is history and role-playing games, and we have with us some guests, and I'd like to ask them to uh, to introduce themselves. Uh, John, why don't you go first? Okay, hello. Thanks for having me on. I am probably best known for art and art direction and a bit of writing on the One Ring role-playing game and the 5e follow-up Adventures in Middle-Earth. I currently run a small publisher called Handiwork Games, and we're working on a game called Beowulf Age of Heroes for 5e, and we're working with Ken Height on Helena Stika for also for 5e. I've been a freelance artist for 20-odd years, um, and I've worked on D&D, RuneQuest, Warhammer Historical. Yeah, and my website's at handiwork.games. Great, thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is uh, Davide. I am a freelance writer and game designer. I've worked on many different projects recently, mainly on uh, Savage Worlds and uh, related uh, contents. And currently, I am one of the individuals responsible for a game called Brancalonia, who is an uh, Italian D&D 5 setting based on uh, Italian history, folklore, and uh, literary tradition. So uh, my name is Gianluca Raccani. Primarily, uh, I'm a lecturer in medieval history uh, at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, more recently, I've been kind of dealing with games uh, uh, as well, and we are launching a network or a lab in Edinburgh, and we called it Edinburgh History and Games Lab, because what we want to do with the lab is to explore how history then engages with the world of games, both with the games industry and with gamers. I'm interested in that because I have started to work a little bit, as I said, with games and we have, uh, we, have we are about to launch uh, an expansion on the Crusader States for a war game called uh, Lion Rampant. But the way uh, we dealt with this expansion 
was a bit strange for war gamers. They they thought that it was something in between war game scenarios and role playing game. That's why we thought today also to explore how role playing games deal with history and engage with history or with historical literature. And finally, I'm James Holloway. My background's in archaeology, but these days I'm a history teacher. I've also written for role playing games, and most recently I contributed to Cthulhu Dark Ages from Chaosium. And uh, I've got another medieval Lovecraftian horror project coming out. You know, because I had done this historical RPG project, I did this talk last year uh, as part of the History and Games Lab. And we wanted to expand this to the broader question of history in RPG design, because there were a lot of speakers at that event who were talking about digital games. Um, and obviously, you know, history in digital games is a big topic, but there was very little talk. I think I was, you know, there was me and then it was mentioned in um, one of the other talks, but there's very little about role-playing games. So I wanted today to talk about uh, history and how it influences uh, role-playing game design. So let's open up with the question. Obviously, uh, the sort of the dominant genre in role-playing games is fantasy and, and sort of has been since its inception. And even though the original uh, creators of role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons were huge medieval history enthusiasts, there were comparatively few purely historical role-playing games. There are a lot of what I would describe as kind of historical fantasy role-playing games, and I feel like that applies both to Brancolonia and to Beowulf. What is it that made you choose these topics? Why why historical fantasy rather than the kind of creative freedom that presumably comes with a completely original fantasy setting? Um, what is it about historical fantasy that motivated you to choose those backgrounds? I think the main factor in choosing historical or pseudo-historical uh, setting is the fact that uh, the real world is always better than what you can invent. Reality uh, always beats imagination. And in history, we find uh, events and stories that are much more surprising and fun than in literature. Uh, historical events have a tendency to be much wilder than what we can create as writers. So I think the first element in choosing a historical setting over a completely made up setting is the fact that history gives you texture, a much stronger, stronger texture than completely made up world. Uh, unless you are on Tolkien and uh, you spend 30 years creating your world uh, in every single detail, a completely made up world will never have the depth and uh, texture of a historical setting. So in a sense, when you're working with a historical or, or pseudo-historical setting, a lot of the work is done for you already by reality. Yes, a lot of work is already done, often in a purely historical setting. Uh, your work consists in uh, looking for gray areas where we don't know and fill them with invention you provide. Otherwise, in a pseudo-historical setting like Brancalonia, you can pick and choose the best bits and sort of uh, edit the historical setting to suit the tone of the game you plan to design. So yes, it's uh, it's laziness. We want to work as little as possible while putting out something that remains impressive. Now, I don't know that I'm going to get everyone to admit to being motivated by laziness. So, uh, John, tell us a little bit about you know, the, the the process behind Beowulf. I mean, I know that, um, and, and if you want to talk about 
Hellenistica as well, uh, because what Davide said reminded me, of course, of uh, Ken Height's dictum, start with Earth, and that obviously would seem to apply here. Tell me a little bit about what motivated you to initiate or to take on these projects. I'm kind of cheating in some ways in that there is quite a lot of, you know, Beowulf is kind of the original fantasy story, you know, it's got these sort of iconic monsters in it and we've certainly for gaming we're certainly focusing on the monster side of it but it's it, it is about i mean I, I could echo a lot of what david has just just said basically but um, i mean for me it's what i love it's what i'm really interested in certainly through working on tolkien for like 10 years i became more and more fascinated by his influences i thought were more interesting Ooh, that's really sacrilegious saying more interesting than his work. I mean, I still obviously have huge affection for his work. I think Tolkien would have agreed with you, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I was just probably, about to probably, say the same yeah, thing. Yeah, probably the case. It's almost more interesting to look at what he's drawing on. Um, but listen, I don't want to talk too much about Tolkien, really. I think Beowulf is such a sort of er uh, story. You know, it's, it's the original and so much comes out of it. And it feels... Uh, like there's a lot to explore there with a kind of limited palette. And I mean, that's something in my artwork, I'm kind of known for using very restricted palettes. You know, you don't use all the colors all the time. And I think there's a lot of that in, in designing settings based on, on history. You can go for a sort of certain type of mood or, or a certain directed kind of experience more easily by basing things on, on history. I think, I think it's really helpful. I mean, it also has the advantage that everyone can bring something to it. You can go away and do your own research and bring it to the game rather than someone being quite territorial over a manual or, or an author being quite territorial over their own creation. You know, I've certainly had a few negative experiences with, with designers who have made up a world and they won't let you do anything with it. You know, you can't, it's, they, they, it's almost like a power trip thing for them, whereas history is a lot broader. Yeah, you can't... Uh, you can't assert any control over a story that's from the 11th century yeah right i mean it's just i'm such a i'm eventually i want i want to do a like an open university course in my copious spare time in early medieval poetry now because i'm so i just absolutely adore it and the the kind of the different translations of of a text i find really really interesting and that started with beowulf but i've moved on to i mean i'm not a particularly religious person but i've just i've been reading the the, the gospels in anglo-saxon and it's just like it's incredible you know the the these very familiar stories but the way the language works creates a whole other mood you know that the anglo-saxons are obviously very keen to have a sort of when i was reading the the hall thing from mm. from the beowulf um starter scenario oh, i was, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. very pleased to see that you'd uh, opted to follow the heaney translation uh, yes. of beowulf in having the first word be so yeah um, <laughs> the first word of beowulf is this great debate about translators how yeah. do you translate it it was the beginning yeah, of the that story, was, so it's that was a definite nod so. to the heaney which is my favorite you know he's, he's my favorite beowulf and I've read too many of them now, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I just think he's absolutely spot on with that so stuff. I think being motivated by something you're really interested in is always really good. And yeah, I do find history really engaging. And yeah, yeah, the sort of limited palette that comes with it, I think is really useful. When, when I think about James' questions, uh, question, uh, for some reason I think about, I rephrase uh, a famous phrase from um, Hamlet, there are more things in heaven or Horatio than uh, are dreamt of in your philosophy. So I, I, I like to think that, uh, to rephrase it in, there are more things in human history, Horatio, than 
than are dreamt of uh, in uh, your imagination. Because, you know, human history is so rich of uh, interesting uh, information and settings and uh, that, that can be used for gaming. It's interesting, right? Because in many ways, the kind of fantastic presentation of history often actually consists of kind of these stereotypes that are drawn from the real history so that the history is actually more nuanced and complex. And you get people's perceptions of those stereotypes feeding back into uh, into their understanding of the actual history. So when we were talking about developing uh, Call of Cthulhu in the Middle Ages, there was all this stuff about like, oh, well, they're going around burning heretics and they're you know, burning this and they're burning that. And you're like, eh, that's actually very rare. But everyone's understanding of the medieval church is that it's the Inquisition from Warhammer 40,000 rather than the complex and weird and often contradictory organization that it really was. Because even though people are not looking at a presentation of history, they're looking at fantasy, they kind of infer back to the history from fantasy. Every year I have my students write an essay about a, a historical film or game or, or book or something, you know, about a presentation of history in popular media. And every year, one of them asks me if they can write about something that is clearly not historical. So this year, someone asked me if they could write about Game of Thrones. And that actually leads on, I think, to the next point that I wanted to talk about, which is game ability. So, uh, Davide, I thought you said something really interesting about the idea of, of gray areas, right? Of finding the spaces where History is silent about something, and therefore we can say, well, you know, we don't know what happened to this thing, so maybe, you know, that's, a, that's like a, a place in the edges where we can play around. How do you combine those concerns? You know, if you're interested in presenting some form of historical authenticity or, or, or fidelity to the original text, or if you have a reality of the history that means, you know, there are things that, that players like to do that you're probably not going to be able to, right? Where do you find that, that point of balance between... Um, authenticity and gameability, those, uh, those challenges? Well, uh, in our case, first of all, we are working with a huge gray area because our game, in the end, is a low fantasy game with a stress on the low. So we are looking at the lower classes. Historical fiction and uh, fantasy gaming often focus on knights, lords, ladies, and so on. Our game is a game of peasants, beggars, and uh, poor people trying to make a living in a very dangerous world. This is a gray area because we do not have chronicles of poor people uh, or even uh, classic literary works like uh, Ariosto or Tasso that we used as an inspiration. So first of all, we are working with uh, something that is usually off screen. And uh, given this, we have a much more free hand than we would have uh, while portraying, say, a court. As for playability, and uh, gamer ideas, we tend to privilege gamer ideas. So if what you want to play goes against historical accuracy, go on with our blessing and, and have fun. This is still the player's game. So they have to be free to do what they please. We give them all the building blocks we can. We give them a place to play. Uh, what they want to do is up to them. And uh, indeed, during development, we had a huge feedback from uh, Italian gamers, which told us that really there was a need for this kind of setting, a setting that was rooted in our history and in a certain yeah, fantasy perception of our past. So we got a lot of players' feedback, uh, which helped a lot. And we know they will not stick to history. They will go wild, absolutely. Uh, they told us. They showed us, and it's fine, it's absolutely fine, uh, because uh, 
that's the fun part. Well, even Beowulf probably doesn't, uh, 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 it's historical, but up to a point. I mean, it is a literary work, it's not. A, uh, it's not a doomsday book uh, that, uh, that records things. What's interesting to me about that, having read the quick start scenario for Beowulf, is that it, it's very focused on sort of like an early medieval ethos or an early medieval aesthetic. And that, on the one hand, that's, you know, I think that's the the historical thing about it. But on the other hand, you can also see how playing a doom-laden hero headed toward an inevitable confrontation with some kind of nemesis, that, that poses its own challenges, right? If you're trying to be faithful to the the mood and the feeling of that literature surely john there must be things that you had to kind of balance in terms of the accessibility of play i guess or i don't know what was your experience like i don't know i think you can kind of turn a lot of stuff to it to its advantage like as you top out in level in beowulf we're still um testing the final versions of this stuff but basically once you hit the top end you're going to die that's the the end of your hero the kind of stuff you get at level 20 in 5e is the stuff that kills you it's really great it's really good you're going to get a session where you are super awesome and then you're going to die and that's going to be the end of your story and you'll start a new story and i don't think that's like a bad thing i think that's a really really great thing that because i think we've all played in games where almost well maybe we haven't maybe i've just been unlucky where you almost want it to end you know like a dnd campaign that won't die and you think oh, i wish kind of this had a structure to it and and we've put that in place but it's it's at the far end of level progression so if you don't want that um you know we know that most players don't play that far anyway and i can imagine a bunch of gms will want to dms will want to bring that down the level scale because they'll they'll never reach level 20 um Depends how you play it, etc., etc., etc. Well, it's, it. yeah, it answers that old question, right? What do you do the day after you save the world? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you don't. Well, I suppose you do in Beowulf, but then your one of your followers picks up the mantle and continues, you know, as a new character, just just like in the story. And I think there's a way. In, in some ways, I think you've got to be a bit, especially if if you're working with a with a pre-established system, you've got to be prepared to mess with the system if it if it totally contradicts what would normally. Happened. We did. We published a, an article this week. Jacob, one of my co-designers, wrote a bit about. He was really shocked because historically, I I hate two weapon fighting and dual wielding and all that, especially for for this period because it's it's just a bit stupid. I had suggested it for if people want to do it, it it, it makes a lot of sense for for kind of doom laden, doomed. I was I was painting a particular pre generated character who who is looking for the for his final fight. Basically, he's a total. He's looking to die in, in, in a, a big fight. Now, I could see him using two swords or two axes. That makes sense. It's a really stupid thing to do in the period if you're looking for sort of historical veracity of the way people fought at the time. You know, a guy with a sword and board is just going to do so much better than, than somebody with two swords, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a very boring old argument. But, um, but you can, you know, you can turn it to your advantage. You can make something of it and make it characterful. So if people want that option, you can present it to them, but it, but it comes with a different set of consequences than perhaps Core 5e would do, you know. Yeah, and it, I mean, and that's interesting, right? Because you have the same thing, but it does have these two different implications. So if you're thinking mm. about, you know, 5e, when, when people are talking about two up and fighting, they're imagining some kind of Florentine fencing. Yeah sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas in the early medieval texts, like I can think of one instance, uh, mm -hmm. Harald Hardrada fights with two axes in, in the episode in Heimskringla where he's killed. Yes. Um, and yes. it's seen as a sign as, of how furious he is, that he's, yeah, yeah. he's so mad that he's not even trying to protect himself. 
Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So it is a, a very different feeling. You can kind of use that. You know, you use that. that that's what you sort of dig out of the text to, to inform the way the mechanics work. Well, depending on you know, depending on how you work, that's how we work. Certainly. One of the things that struck me from your, our conversation so far is I think we chose well the topics. Uh, on one side, we got Beowulf, which is you know the quintessential northern uh, kind of uh, story, medieval historical fiction with heroes. You know, as far as I understand it. Mm. Uh, and on the other end, you know, we have Brancalonia. It might be worth spending a few minutes, uh, a, few, uh, a few words on, the, on Brancalonia, what, what it is, because our audience might know very well about Beowulf or heard about Beowulf, but not uh, Brancaleone, which is uh, the topic of, uh, of Brancalonia, because it is exact opposite end of, of Beowulf. It is uh, uh, it's not about a, a hero, it's, uh, it's more of a picaresque hero. Uh, yes. and, uh, it's set in Italy, which is usually not associated with fantasy, while you know, the Earthland of, of fantasy is considered Northern Europe, kind of, that kind of Beowulf-like uh, setting, while Brancalonia is almost the exact opposite. You know, you go into, it's set in the Mediterranean, kind of Mediterranean-like place, uh, these picaresque, low-life characters. No, I think, I think our Middle Ages have been overlooked mostly so far. Even in movies, uh, something like uh, Lady Hawk is set in Italy, but it's the dayland of Middle Ages. It's almost Renaissance. Uh, Flesh and Blood, Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood, is uh, early Renaissance Italy. But the dirty, depressing Middle Ages, no, it's been shunned so far. It is, and it comes from Brancaleone da Norcia, who is this, uh, the, the hero of this movie from the 60s. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it, it was a, a movie that existed, was produced in order to criticize a certain look at, at the Middle Ages or the Italian Middle Ages. Like, you know, it's good to go against the uh, portrayal of the Middle Ages that focuses on, on knights and uh, shining armor. I think there was, you know, um, a project there to, 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 to counter that uh, that look specifically. It's, and also, the, I think it's important, the uh, other important thing to, re, to remember is that is this comedy uh, aspect that is quite different from perhaps your uh, usual fantasy fantasy uh, setting. The original Brancaleone, the movie, uh, was a comedy. Yes, the original Brancaleone, the two, uh, just uh, as a footnote, uh, the two Brancaleone movies are sort of our uh, icon. We lit a candle to Brancaleone every morning while working on the job of this uh, book. Brancaleone is a very modern look on the Middle Ages, a very anti-romantic look at the Middle Ages. And therefore, it emphasizes the uh, ridiculous elements of the Middle Ages, and ridiculous to our uh, perception. Course. So yes, we are very distant from Beowulf because the main tragic element in Brancalonia is a few nights in the cold without dinner uh, or uh, escaping tax collector. So yes, we um, emphasized uh, comedy because our source material with Brancaleone was certainly uh, comedic and because going all out in purely historical fashion would have made for a very depressing game. Because if you want to play the Middle Ages from the point of view of the lower classes, nasty, brutish, and short, 
your life. I just I was just going to say that it's also interesting that like when you get characters from sort of the lowest social orders appearing in medieval literature, a lot of the time it's as comic characters. I wanted to jump from here to a question, which is when you're dealing with historical settings, you know, one of the challenges is how do you deal with the question of inclusivity? Because you're, I mean, the the stereotype, if you look at medieval literature, is very concerned with focusing primarily on the heroic deeds of male characters. And, you know, here we are, four dudes sitting around talking about this. So, you know, maybe we're not in the in the perfect position uh, to comment on this. But, um, you know, one of the the things that you'll get is people saying, well, obviously you can't have female characters participating in this. It's not historically accurate or whatever. How do you uh, approach that question of making uh, a range of, of potential character types possible within the boundaries of a historical setting or quasi-historical? In our case, in Catalonia, it was easy. Because we are dealing with lower class, we are dealing with people living at the margins and people breaking the rules. So uh, the classical trope of the woman in men's clothes trying to sneak somehow, it's perfectly acceptable. And also, as we go and look especially at um, a certain literature uh, and folklore, especially folklore, female protagonists are often present in our legends and uh, fairy tales. Uh, and therefore, it's easy to incorporate them in uh, in the setting. And of course, this being not a strictly historical and uh, canonical setting, of course, all classes and all roles are open to both male and female characters. But it's not, uh, it does not sound weird, because really, if you look at uh, a lot of uh, stories about uh, traveling actors or entertainers, or indeed peasants, you will see that women were there and they had an I think I think something in common in all of this is when you start to do your so the underpinnings of Beowulf as a, as a game sort of uh, separating out Beowulf the poem Beowulf the game that we're working on we've gone away done loads and loads of research so that our players don't necessarily have to so we can present the gameable parts you know we've done oh, I wish I I should have built a stack of books that I've read over the last year because it's you know it's like about eight feet high. Um, and the more research you do, the more and more and more you will find that the focus on even white male people is very much a Victorian construction or, you know, a 19th century construction. And it's just not true. You know, the, we, it's even in, in the, the Hermit Sanctuary, which is the, the, the demo adventure that we've got out at the moment. We made a point to call out in, in a sidebar that the Anglo-Saxons really, really loved their laws and written laws was something that they were really into, sort of almost separating them from other peoples that they didn't sort of hold in high esteem like the Vikings. You know, their, their literacy was very important to them. And when we look at their actual written laws, we find that men and women of a certain, you've got to be of a certain social class, you know, sort of free, basically, in, in shorthand. The term man means man or woman, it, it legally um, and then, and you can find lots and lots of characters historically, you know, the Lady of Mercia and so on, who, who ruled a kingdom without anybody making a big fuss that they were a woman. You know, it just doesn't. And, and you have to then turn it on its head and ask yourself, why do I think people in history were really sexist? Why, why do I think that? Is it, is it true? Can I find evidence for that? And it's not quite as clear cut, I think, as perhaps some people would have. I did. I made a poor gentleman once march out of a Gen, Gen Con talk about representation in fantasy because he was trying to make out that the 
history is full of these really, really, it's just non-stop Game of Thrones misery and anybody weak was just constantly being molested. And that, wh- why do you want that? Why, where do you get this from? Where, you know, this is, you need to show some evidence of this. And, and I'm a little bit worried for you because I, I think that's just a fiction. I mean, I mean, you know, bad things happen in history, right? You know, bad things happen now. There are people in the world and there always have been people in the world who are prepared to use violence to get what they want and act on their desires and so on. Um, but it's not wall to wall, you know, by any manner of means. And so yeah, we didn't find it particularly hard. Um, I mean, obviously we have the oh, I had some. This is a good one actually. Talk about inclusivity. I knew and predicted it almost to the day when we got it that we would get hate mail for the inclusion of uh, Ibn Uthman is one of the pregenerate characters who's who's a kind of he's an Arabic character in in the Beowulf setting, and of course he's based on Ibn Fadlan, who's a real person you know 13th warrior is is sort of in part based on his writings and beowulf and if you go looking it's all there it's just a failure of imagination and a failure of research if you think you know that the the past is this entirely sexist place you know i just don't think it is so yeah very similar answer to david it it was easy yeah that's an an interesting point i think i think uh when you say you know game of thrones type misery you, you you answer your own question to some extent that 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 people get this image from authors who use the Middle Ages as a stand-in for barbarism, because if they were writing a story about normal people doing normal things, they would set it in the present day, if that makes sense, right? They've chosen the Middle Ages because they want to portray somewhere that's dark and violent. I find it fascinating that these are modern myths. You know, a lot of history that, that is told, in certainly in things like that, are modern myths. You know, they're as mythic as Beowulf is, that the other, you know, we set up this other, this, you know, I don't want to reel off a load of racist stereotypes, but you set up a load of racist stereotypes and then you tell a story about it. And that, for a long time, was considered history. But that I is interesting about uh, uh, both projects also use popular media and movies from a few decades ago as a source of inspiration. Because uh, Bracalonia considers uh, the Italian Middle Ages uh, but uh, Brancaleone, the movie, uh, Brancaleone, L'Armata Brancaleone, the Brancaleone Army, a movie from the 60s, plays quite an important part in the, in the project. But it seems that also the 13th Warrior uh, plays uh, uh, an important part in, uh, in Beowulf. I mean, even Beowulf yeah. from the early Middle Ages is a yeah. work of historical fiction about an even earlier historical period. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so it's, it, uh, it does have that element of kind of um, these sort of layers of myth-making. So the... the the final question that I wanted to ask was another thing that both of these projects have in common is that they're both 5e projects. They're both based on, you know, 5th edition D&D, and yet they're very different from the kind of core assumptions that that encodes. Um, how did you find that trying to adapt historical settings to a system that has a number of, you know, not so historical assumptions baked into it? In our case, uh, we uh, built our game on top of the fifth edition, so that uh, players familiar with the basic uh, assumptions of the game will not be shocked and will be able to use the rules as they are. We tweaked a little the setting, mostly because we wanted to portray a low fantasy. So, for instance, we are using the gritty realism uh, rules. Our game, in our game, uh, it's easier to get hurt 
and it's harder to get healed, for instance. And then we provided setting-oriented add-ons. Uh, we have special rules for brawls, for instance, uh, because as we play in a world that is a lot deadlier than the standard uh, fantasy game. Uh, it's also true that non-lethal fighting is much more common and it's almost legal. As long as you don't kill anybody, uh, it's a question between you and the person you thrashed. So we added a lot of uh, rules about uh, brawls and um, also rules about social competition. You can face your adversaries in uh, games, tavern games, or other pastimes, uh, because um, once again, as we are focusing on the lower classes, <clears throat> living in a time and a world that, in which life is cheap, but because it's cheap, you do not uh, risk it too much. You are much more interested in having a good time than in having a, a good fight. Uh, and so we preserved the D&D 5th &D, uh, edition rules. We provide uh, different races, uh, meaning that, um, once again, if the players want to play an elf, okay, go on, it's your game. But we have um, races inspired by our folklore and our popular tradition. Uh, so you can play, say, an half, a half giant with a guy eight feet tall and just as broad. And we provide subclasses. So we have 12 classes that are simply the standard classes in D&D, but tweaked to fit the setting. So they are low-class low fighters. Uh, there's a lot of knaves and uh, bandits and people like that. Uh, but each class, spellcasters and so on, is presented with a slight tweak that makes it fit the setting. Last thing, because I was told it is important, by uh, the guys that worked on the rules, the progression, the, the experience progression, flatten out, flattens out at a certain point. We don't want to have uh, eye-level, uh, world-shattering world characters. Uh, you don't go and become Hercules. And so your advancement at a certain point slows down drastically because you aspire at a quiet old age, not at a heroic death like a viking i mean and john you've departed even more radically from the the sort of basic structure of fifth ed D, in that beowulf is a a one-on-one -on -one game with with one hero and one dm did that pose any uh, challenges for you doing it that way or what was your experience like yeah i mean it took us a bit longer than we planned um we were we were hoping to be done probably this time last year but we kind of kept hitting on more and more things to do that we really liked and, and kept working at. Um, so yeah, the, the big thing is it is for one player. And so to kind of make it work with 5e, you, your hero has a bunch of followers and we have some quite specific rules we've created for those. They almost, the closest thing they work like is uh, almost like spells in that they, uh, your follower will kind of take to the stage at a moment that is appropriate for them to use an ability that they have and then they depart the stage and, and they, they pretty much won't show up again in the adventure it's quite ab abstracted in that way but we kind of we liked it <laughs> it was good it's it, it's going to be of a certain flavor i'm sure not everyone will like it but it does let you play with one player and one gm and that, that does a lot for the way the game plays in that there isn't there are certain things in D&D that are about time pressure that if you've got four or five players 
things need to move along so everyone gets a shot, you know, everyone gets to speak and everyone gets to do things. Whereas when you've just got one GM, one one player, then it matters a bit less. You can spend some time thinking about each combat round without being that really annoying person that's pouring over their couch sheet and everyone else is held up by it. Um, of course, you lose, with the same way, you, you potentially lose a bit of interaction because you're not bouncing off. I mean, in our GM's advice chapter, this is something to be very aware of when you're running it. You've not got four people all putting into the pot to create those situations where everyone's just role-playing away and, and you, the DM doesn't need to do anything, you know, and those are really enjoyable times. So we're aware those have to be replaced with something, you know, to keep the game flowing. And that that's probably the tough to actually answer the question, those were probably the tough things where it's what what do you do instead of the things that you... And I think that was the hard bit for us with Beowulf was to make sure we're dealing with that and not just dealing with academic rules. We're dealing with the way it works with two players and, and, and how things play, um, which is, yeah, with the, we're really keen to get feedback now from people who have played the scenario because we've got a bunch of assumptions having worked on it for a long time you know and want to know how people get on with it we're just about out of time i wanted to just solicit before we go some final thoughts as you near the ends of these uh, creation processes Wh- what do you feel like uh you've learned about the interaction of uh, of games in history what what uh, what did you think at the beginning of it that you don't think now or or vice versa probably the the one thing that uh, struck me personally while working on this uh, project was becoming really aware of the different perception of history uh, from the point of view of someone that works with history or has a professional interest in the subject and the general public and it becomes really a game of balance because you do not want to lose your readers or your players along the way if you present them too much detail and too much realism they might be shocked or bored or simply disoriented so what i learned is we sometimes take too much of what we know because of our professional background as a given and our work is to go and meet the readers or the players halfway so in the end you have to decide what you need to keep and what you need to tweak change or cut out completely from your project that was a hard lesson really because uh, the first impact was uh oh come on these guys know nothing and then uh, yes they don't know nothing and we need to talk to them <laughs> so it's a compromise that was my takeaway really one of my ways in at the start of the project was obviously Beowulf is a poem and I didn't expect to enjoy the language side of it as much as I have. That's almost nothing to do with gaming, but the Anglo-Saxon poetry, I just find it absolutely amazing and awesome to a degree I did not expect to. I thought it was kind of cool and good and there's a lot to it, but I'm really, really in love with it now. I really, you know, I really want to learn so much more you know like there's a lot of that sort of you don't know what you don't know and finding out you know so much stuff like you don't know what you don't know is a is a is a pretty good summary does that with your experiences luca when you were working on crusader state yes definitely because you need to to, to be quite selective you need to decide what what you want to convey with your project but that's something that applies generally speaking also to uh, uh, you know academic writing and academic academic research uh, to be quite selective especially if you want to 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 create something that is you know well defined and 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 sharp uh, and sharp in a way 
the, the, the thing that uh, always find it interesting is also how, uh, how to balance, as we discussed today, uh, historical accuracy and, uh, uh, and, and playability. But uh, it was interesting to see how this was done in two projects that uh, at first sight they might look quite similar, that is taking history and historical fiction and gamifying it. But in reality, you have seen today how the two projects are uh, quite different because they got different perspective and different uh, uh, starting points on how that is done and what, what that, that, that it implies. Well, it's so interesting because there is so much material in the history of uh, uh, humanity. But for the very reason, then you need to be uh, you need to be very, very, very selective, choosing what, what you want to uh, uh, focus, what you want to use, uh, and, and, and how you use it. Otherwise, uh, it becomes too broad and, uh, and, uh, and meaningless and not usable, especially for gaming. And that, I think, is one thing that people often don't realize. When you look at my own period of the early Middle Ages, people tend to think, oh, it's the Dark Ages. We don't know that much about it. Well, maybe not relatively to the modern day. But there is still a lot of information and you have to be the one who applies that filter to it. And that is more challenging than I think a lot of people anticipate. I think, oh, I'll just learn everything I need to know about Anglo-Saxons. And then, oh, wait, actually, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's um, no end to it. What am I going to do with all these liturgical manuals? I thought of something. Sorry to jump in there. No, I go for it. When I first started out, something that fascinated me, perhaps not in, in terms of the sort of mythic Beowulf side, was that the, you know, the Romans in the, in the sort of early migration period, the Romans leave London and the Anglo-Saxons do not recolonize London. It is not taken up as a place of dwelling. And at the beginning, I thought that was fascinating because I can allow myself to have a bit of gamer imagination. It's like, ooh, that's like spooky or something. Why? You know, and I thought it was a great big mystery. And the more I've learned, it's not a mystery at all. And in a really weird way, you just find out why. You read enough and then you go, oh, because they're like basically like an agricultural society that has no need of a city whatsoever and wouldn't know how to work it if you know if they wanted to they don't live that way they don't but they're probably quite happy not doing a city and it wouldn't occur to them to go and live in that place because it would be horrible compared to living in a sort of farmstead with your family you know why would you go and live in london now you know it's sort of the same thing and i thought that that was a really fascinating thing to learn where it's just very practical almost you know and it's less mysterious than you think and I, well i think those those boring answers don't get a lot of popular traction right yeah. like a, yeah well it's ghosts um, obviously the they yeah, it's ghosts. they're frightened of the ghosts yeah. well look that's just about all the time that we have for today uh before we go could you tell our listeners where they can find more about your projects uh online um debbie Day, if people want to learn more about brancolonia where do they go if they want to learn more about uh, our project by the way we are launching the kickstarter for the game in a few days uh, so uh, come and look for us on Facebook the the name is Brancalonia uh, or check out the publishers website it's Acheron book to download the quick start so you can follow the link in the show notes, Acheron Books. And of course, you say in a few days, which means that by the time our listeners hear this, it'll probably already have started. John, where can our listeners find out more about Beowulf? Um, I'm just joining the group for Brancolonia because I really want to play it. Um, you can find us at handiwork.games is our website. And that'll you can find all sorts of links to all sorts of stuff on there. So yeah, check that out. Okay. And finally, if people want to learn more about the Edinburgh History and Games Lab, where should they go? Uh, currently, a Facebook page. Uh, soon, we will have a uh, website uh, as well. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, you can go join the Edinburgh History and Games Lab uh, Facebook group. And then, yes, new website coming soon. All right, fantastic. So that only remains to, once again, uh, thank everyone 
today, Davide, John, thank you very much both for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Edinburgh History and Games Lab podcast is a production of the Edinburgh History and Games Lab. Find us on Facebook to learn more about our project. Music for today's episode comes from Iris Hence Away by George Friedrich Candle, performed by the MIT Symphony Orchestra and released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time.